Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with the leader of the Columbus Urban League. In a little over 15 minutes, Kate Burdett will talk with a doctor from Equitas Health about monkeypox. There are more than 11,000 cases nationwide now and 89 in Ohio. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend covers a number of topics, including this month's primary election, the portion that was delayed from May because of the redistricting problems, a look at the upcoming November election and the races for governor and U.S. Senate, and the State Highway Patrol needs troopers. The new superintendent of the patrol will talk about that. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with a doctor at Ohio State University about a clinical study they're conducting. They need volunteers, people 55 and older who have mild memory loss. Details about that in about 45 minutes. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me, Stephanie Hightower, who is the president and CEO of the Columbus Urban League. How are you? I'm good, Dave. How about you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. The Columbus Urban League, tell us in a nutshell what it is. <laughs> well, we are a 100-year-old organization. Um, we are a nonprofit civil rights, social justice over, uh, organization uh, that has been around for over 105 years. And, you know, we have a steadfast commitment, Dave, to, you know, create hope and opportunity for uh, nearly 70,000 African-Americans and um, uh, marginalized people and urban families um, in Columbus and Franklin County. Uh, we are very uh, proud that we offer what we think is an authentic, integrated system of services uh, that work to strengthen families. We help overcome barriers, uh, help people achieve economic mobility. Uh, we foster entrepreneurship, which is what we're going to talk a little bit about today. Um, and we construct those on-ramps to wealth creation uh, through smart financial practices. And, and we teach you know, children critical academic and life skills. And the Columbus Urban League is one of the largest and most active urban leagues in the U.S. That is correct. We rank right now in the top five uh, in the U.S. Now, we have in Ohio seven affiliates, which is wonderful. So we have a, a, a group that we, we meet. Uh, we're one of the few states that has a large contingent of uh, active urban leagues. That's fantastic. Now, uh, you mentioned entrepreneurship, and a New York-based nonprofit is collaborating with some local entities, uh, and you're involved in this. It's a program to empower black entrepreneurs in the Columbus area. Yes, we're really excited about the Lonely Entrepreneur Partnership. One Columbus is a part of this. Ice Miller is a part of this, and and really grateful to the support from the PNC Foundation. Uh, you know, we... We have been, ever since the, um, even before the pandemic, we have run a Minority Business Assistance Center um, that's a part of the state of Ohio here at the Urban League. And we, from there, we knew that uh, minority-owned businesses uh, had been, have been marginalized, didn't have access to capital, um, and didn't have the ability to uh, really build capacity for, you know, a sustainable business. And so the MBAC was, you know, our entity to begin to address those issues. And then once the pandemic hit, um, uh, and then with the social justice, you know, movement, the sort of resurgence, but the pandemic really, really um, exacerbated what we already knew as far as lack of access to capital, 
uh, and the ability for black-owned businesses to, to, to sustain, uh, especially in, during the pandemic environment. And so we started uh, helping small businesses get PPP loans. Uh, we, 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 we went to the city, uh, I mean, to the county uh, uh, and the city where they gave us uh, dollars to be able to uh, give those, uh, uh, those black-owned businesses grants so that they could at least sustain their operations during the, the pandemic. Um, but one of the things that we also found through that process is that there was a need for us to uh, provide those tools, that technical assistance that is needed to sustain their operations. And so um, this, this partnership, the Lonely Entrepreneur Partnership, is really another way that gives us the ability to even reach more black entrepreneurs uh, through this platform to help them to uh, build the knowledge, the tools, and the support that they need to help grow their businesses. And a black business community is so vital to a city the size of Columbus, and to be able to find and spotlight and empower the individuals who can drive that is essential. You know, you are you hit the nail on the on on the head. Um, what we want to do is, you know, our our motto here at the Columbus Urban League is we want to build um, the, that that next group of of, of uh, millionaire business people here in Columbus. Because what does that do? What it does is it provides jobs for uh, black and brown people. It also provides um, an economy uh, in in our neighborhoods. Um, it, it's, it's another way that we can help people get home ownership uh, and build a home ownership. Uh, it's another way for our young people to actually see what they can be by uh, increasing the number of entrepre- black entrepreneurs and help them to grow, to grow their businesses. So it's about creating an ecosystem in the black community around business and entrepreneurship that is going to be vital for the success of, our, of us growing and improving um, the, the, the urban core. Now, we've heard in recent years that there's record employment for the African-American community. Uh, is that as good as it sounds, or are they often not getting the kind of jobs they are looking for or desiring? Well, we, we, we do know that. Um, you know, what we have found over the last two years is that, you know, black people um, are no longer willing to uh, work for um, lower or, or, or not work for minimum wage jobs. And even the minimum wage jobs don't uh, provide you the opportunity to uh, deal with the rising cost in, in uh, the housing market. Uh, they don't, you can't deal with the rising cost of, of, of gasoline and, and food. And so what's happening is a lot of people are saying, you know, they've already had what they had called a side hustle anyway. So how do I how do I take what was a side hustle and and but really a passion and how do I build that into a small business um, that is sustainable? I can you know employ three or four people uh, in you know in, in the community uh, uh, and, and and grow a business that is essential um, and that's sustainable and and that's what a lot of folks are doing. They're no longer willing to you know work for minimum wage and um, they want to go out here and do their own thing and so that's why we're hoping this program will help to provide those tools and the knowledge they need in order to grow those businesses even and make them even bigger. 
Well, even though the job market uh, seems to be robust with all the, you know, the job creation going on, this uh, inflation, you know, rental costs have skyrocketed and affordable housing is becoming kind of frightening these days. Well, there is no affordable housing. There's there's a lack of it, a serious lack of affordable housing. Uh, Folks cannot continue to, you know, work two and three jobs to make ends meet. You know, when we start talking about our young people, when you have parents who have to work two two jobs, that doesn't give them the flexibility to be home, to be able to parent their children. And then, you know, we wonder why we have a lot of the challenges we have with our young people uh, being parented um, in our community. And so, you know, we need to find ways where you know, what we're doing here at the Urban League is, you know, we minimum is $50,000 to walk in the door. And, and, and we're saying to funders and grantees, Dave, that, you know, don't expect us to write a grant and expect people to work for $40,000 and $45,000 a year. Um, and then they're out helping people get jobs or, or start careers, and those people are making eighty and $90,000 a year. It doesn't make any sense. I might as well go get in that program, right, if that's the case. And so, um, you know, we, we have to look at how we pay our teachers, how we, you know, our early learning teachers, um, all of, you know, um, all of these professions that are providing services for our community. I think we have to be mindful and we have to be more respectful that, um, we need to be able to pay people and that corporations need to start looking at what does minimum wage actually do um, for the people that are coming to work for them because at the end of the day, I think you're going to continue to see retention. You're not going to see people going to work in a lot of places where you, everybody's saying, oh, there's jobs, but no, nobody wants to work, um, you know, that, that they don't, they don't want to have to do that kind of work anymore without being valued. And that's what we got to start looking at. How do we value people that go to work every day? Talking with Stephanie Hightower, she's the president and CEO of the Columbus Urban League. Well, this uh, Black Entrepreneur Initiative, the first recipients of this program are going to be businesses that are supported by the Columbus Urban League. So you've got a lot of input in what's going on here. Well, that's what we're excited. We've been building uh, a pipeline uh, for the last two and a half years. Uh, of businesses that we know are out there. And so now this is going to give us an opportunity to offer additional assistance to uh, the existing businesses that have come through um, our other technical programs. And this also gives people an opportunity to do this work on their own. We all know that when you're building your own business, uh, you know, trying to take time to go to, you know, a, a, a additional uh, professional development and or technical assistance programs uh, really isn't, um, it, 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 it doesn't help you when you're trying to run your business from, you know, seven to, to seven to seven, uh, and you don't have time to go and do it during the business hours. So this will give people flexibility to be able to, to go online, do it at their own pace, figure out what their needs are from a technical assistance, and, and, and learn how to grow their businesses, um, you know, uh, um, in, a, in, in a more relaxed way. You know, the pandemic was so harmful in so many ways, and yet in one way I'm wondering, uh, especially with entrepreneurs who have all this creative spirit and drive, all this remote and distance learning that we've gotten so much more used to, there's got to be some tremendous opportunities in there that, that people are still developing that could be a springboard to all new types of businesses. 
Well, that's exactly what this is. That's it. You're, you are absolutely right, and that's what this Lonely Entrepreneurship Program is really affording some people to be able to do. Um, you know, if, 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 if I run a daycare center, uh, but I, you know, I, I want to maybe, you know, open up a new daycare center, but I have to figure out, you know, how to put together what my performance is going to be. You know, it'd be, you know, now I, I, I don't have to, to, to uh, worry about the Urban League being closed or the Minority Business Assistance Center being closed at 5 o'clock. Now I can, you know, go online and open up the platform, you know, at maybe 11 o'clock at night when I get finished and winding down, and I can spend two hours trying to figure out how to grow that next business uh, and be successful. So that's why this kind of, this is really important. Um, uh, and, and you're right. I think these, these, these new platforms and, and these online courses are definitely the wave of the future. And, and we know that there are a lot of online higher ed institutions already in existence. And so um, now we know why they've been able to be successful over the years because there are a lot of people who do need to have this, this level of flexibility. Just a couple of minutes to go here with Stephanie Hightower. She's the president and CEO of the Columbus Urban League. Now, this announced what was just made in the last week or so. Is there uh, uh, information that folks can find out online about this entrepreneurship program? Yes. Uh, what you can do is get on the Columbus Urban League website, and there will be a link there um, so that you can know how to begin to access the program. Okay. And then a couple of real quick things I wanted to mention. One is you do have uh, a job fair uh, coming up on uh, Friday, August 19th, right? Yes, we do. We do, and we really welcome. We have some really um, some really cool uh, employers that are showing up. Uh, and, again, this, you know, what, 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 what we try to do is allow people to come uh, to be out. This is about community outreach, and instead of people coming, you know, to go into those employers, we try to create that authentic experience uh, for people, uh, black and brown people, to come. Uh, and uh, we help. There's mentorship that goes on. A lot of times people get hired right there on the, on the spot. Uh, and, again, we only, um, we only uh, have companies that come out um, that are, are looking for people that want to start careers, not just to have a job, but want to have a career, and that, you know, there is compensation that is comparable to what their needs are. And so that's, that's really important. So we, we're, we're excited. We will continue to have these job fairs, and so we, we really invite people to come on out. And, again, people can find out more about that at cul.org for the Columbus right. Urban League. Go on the website, and you can and, and check us out and give you all that information. And then the last thing, uh, the Columbus Urban League is receiving a donation that you called transformational. Yes. Uh, one of our longtime donors, um, Alexis Jacobs, um, uh, passed away, uh, but, you know, the years that she and I had an opportunity to really talk about this work that we're doing here, and probably she always knew that I was very passionate about uh, the work here at the Urban League and the mission, um, she saw fit to leave us uh, a significant donation of $4 million um, that will give us the ability to um, to be transformational um, in the black and brown community, uh, to have some real um, lasting impact. And so we're just really grateful that we will have this opportunity to think through what an investment like this will mean 
for the Urban League, and then how do we make sure that it's utilized um, on behalf of the people that we serve? It's great. It's a lot of pressure, too, Stephanie. <laughs> I'll take I'll, look. I'll take that kind of pressure, Dave. That, that, you know, I'll, I'll take that kind of pressure. Yeah. Well, I like the, the comments that you've made about it. Is that that you want this to be a, a lasting thing? This is something that, that's going to create like a legacy with the Urban League. Absolutely. How do we maybe, you know, look at, you know, alternative revenue streams that might be able to come out of this? Uh, you know, we are we are also uh, uh, looking at an endowment that, you know, we would have here that would help support, you know, ongoing programming. So there, there are there are a lot of different ways that, that this will create that lasting legacy. This is the largest gift that our affiliate has ever received. And so we want to make sure that it is something that will have uh, impact for a long time to come uh, for our community. That's great. Again, Stephanie Hightower joining us, president and CEO of the Columbus Urban League. Anything else you'd like to add? Thank you, Dave, for uh, helping to amplify the voices here at the Urban League and the work that we do. Thanks so much, uh, and thanks for your time. Thank you. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. I'm Kate Burdett. And while news reports are focusing on the risk of monkeypox being transmitted among men who have sex with men, either gay or bisexual men, the fact is we all need to take the outbreak pretty seriously. Anyone can get monkeypox. And as the new school year is getting ready to start, there's some experts sounding the alarm about the potential for outbreaks in places like college campuses. Dr. Matthew Bauer is an infectious disease physician with Equitas Health, a regional nonprofit health system that serves the healthcare needs of the LGBTQ plus communities in 13 Midwestern cities. Hi, Dr. Bauer. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. We, um, like I said, have heard a lot about gay men, men who have sex with men being at highest risk for monkeypox infection. So people who don't identify in those groups and do not find themselves circulating in those groups. What about the risk for, for them? I would caution the public on stigmatizing this virus because this virus can be uh, can infect any person, whether you live in a city, out in the country, whether you uh, it can have a different gender identity, sexual orientation, ethnicity. It really doesn't uh, discriminate between any person. So as kids are heading back to school, um, obviously we've heard a lot about COVID and masking and washing hands and things. What are the risks for students in classrooms, on college campuses? What are some considerations that people might want to want to take or or think about as the school year begins? Yeah, I think that's a, a valid concern for many uh, with the start of the school, school years coming up. I, I would suggest, you know, for people take preventive measures as they start congregating in closer quarters with other people. So normal things uh, uh, we should all be doing, such as frequent washing of hands, using alcohol-based hand sanitizers, and uh, avoiding any uh, close uh, direct skin-to-skin contact with someone who may have a rash that could be uh, monkeypox. What about places we go? What if, uh, say, travelers uh, in hotels, can bed linens uh, spread the virus? Uh, What about like towels at the gym, things like that, that are going to touch your skin? What should we be concerned about, if anything, there? 
as many are aware, the uh, monkeypox can be transmitted through uh, shared uh, clothing, bedding, linens, and stuff like that with someone who is infected with monkeypox. So my suggestion is to make sure that you're not sharing those types of items with other people, uh, with, such as uh, linens or bedding that hasn't been laundered properly. Um, between uh, other people. Uh, some of the other things that I recommend for people who like to work out and go to the gym is make sure that you're wiping down uh, your equipment before and after use. Other than those sort of um, best practices, what do you kind of see, if anything? Are you looking forward thinking, oh, this is going to get bad? Or do you think that at this point, you know, we are learning what we need to learn and we're hearing what we need to hear and it should be under control and it should be okay. So I think looking at the numbers and the rapid rise in cases, we have to be very proactive uh, about our approach uh, here within Ohio uh, and across the nation. Uh, One of the things that even though this virus does not spread as spread like the COVID uh, 19 virus, uh, it is still spreading. And so we have to start thinking about more preventative measures, such as what we already talked about. But also, uh, we already have a vaccine available, the Genios vaccine. So this is something that as it becomes more readily available here in Ohio, uh, I'm hopeful that more uh, of our members out in the community can get vaccinated. Uh, quickly so that this virus can be contained. As we mentioned, there are specific groups that have been identified as being at higher risk, but it's important to not stigmatize this uh, virus toward a specific group or toward a specific behavior. I've heard a lot of health experts echoing the reminder, this is not a sexually transmitted infection. This is not something just gay men can get. Can you touch a little on that and on the real danger that can exist when the general public sort of stigmatizes something like a monkeypox outbreak? As you correctly stated, this is not a uh, virus that is solely contained to uh, men who have sex with men or identify as gay or bisexual. It, it is a virus that any person can get. Um, it just happened to start in that community. And so as we move forward, I would hope that we uh, uh, start focusing on efforts to prevent the spread of the virus to the um, general public. And when monkeypox vaccinations do become readily available, we're, we're hearing differing you know, reports right now about what kind of supplies that will exist. Um, is it something that you see the medical community recommending everyone get a monkeypox vaccination? At the moment, the CDC is recommending it for high-risk close contacts of somebody uh, with monkeypox and others at higher risk of getting monkeypox. I have a feeling that this will soon change and the the criteria that the CDC is recommending for uh, vaccination will uh, change over the next uh, a couple weeks uh, and it may even uh, recommend to the general public at large. And what is the worst sort of case scenario? Um, we've we've heard that monkeypox is not something that can be fatal. 
it is really just more of a sort of condition that you have to get through in terms of the, the skin lesions and things, right? So monkeypox is rarely fatal. 99% of the cases so far seen have not been fatal. There's been a small number of fatalities across the globe, um, four or five that I can recall. And people with who may have a weakened immune system or may experience uh, more severe symptoms uh, and um, are maybe more likely to have uh, uh, worse outcomes as far as um, fatalities. Although it is rarely fatal, we are seeing a number of issues related to the rash uh, where it's causing significant scarring uh, after a person has recovered from monkeypox. Thank you to Dr. Matthew Bauer from Equitas Health in Columbus. If you'd like to learn more about the services of Equitas Health throughout the state of Ohio, their website is equitashealth.com. Spell Equitas, E-Q-U-I-T-A-S. I'm Kate Burdett for Columbus Perspective. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. A small portion of Ohioans went to the polls. We are going to take a look at voter turnout by the numbers in that second primary election. More help is coming to veterans suffering from toxic burn pit exposure. And it's all thanks to a bill named in honor of an Ohio man. Plus, we're going to take you inside of Ohio's first ever anti-hazing summit. We thank you for joining us today on Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Ohio held another primary. Voters chose candidates for the state House and Senate. These were races that could not be on the May ballot because the district's maps were not approved in time. Because it was a second primary held during the summer, with few races, experts predicted record low turnout. Voter turnout ended up being just under 7%. That's according to early calculations from the Franklin County Board of Elections. That is not the lowest they've seen for a primary election. Get this, in May of 2013, only 4% of voters turned out for the ballots. 10 TV's Kevin Landers talked with Secretary of State Frank LaRose, and Kevin asked him to reflect on how Ohio got into this situation. Do you take any blame for that, having an election in the summer as opposed to perhaps in, the, in September? Well, I tell you what, uh, it wouldn't have been possible to do in September because we would have run into the preparations for the November election. August 2nd is a date that's held on the election calendar that was published, gosh, almost two years ago as the date that we set aside for special elections. Now, you're right to say it's unfortunate that we have to have this. We have to have this special election because of the massive amounts of litigation and what I feel are some bad decisions by the Ohio Supreme Court to continue going back and forth on, on redistricting. You're part of the Redistricting Commission. Do you take any blame for that? I mean, I tell you what, that's uh, up to each person to decide who they want to blame. In my opinion, it's because of all kinds of litigation and, again, because of, I think, bad decisions made by the Ohio Supreme Court, a small majority on the Ohio Supreme Court that decided to dive pretty deeply into the politics of redistricting. I think the U.S. Supreme Court has been wise to steer clear of redistricting. It was Chief Justice Roberts that commented a couple years ago that there are two branches of government that do politics. That's the executive branch and the legislative branch. 
branch, the, the judicial branch should never do politics. Unfortunately, in my opinion, the Ohio Supreme Court has been deep into the politics of redistricting. But again, uh, they get the choice. And the four justices on the Ohio Supreme Court that decided to invalidate the maps, uh, they have to answer for that decision. Uh, what our job is to do is to run free and fair elections. And that's exactly what I think what there's a bit done. of a dark cloud over this election because we have a map that was deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court and that voters don't feel that uh, these maps are fair. And do you think there's a cloud over the election because of it? You know, I don't think so. Well, now it's time to shift our focus to the November election. It's a big one. Ohioans will decide who will lead the state Supreme Court, who will represent Ohio in the U.S. Senate, and our next governor. Democratic nominee Nan Whaley is challenging incumbent Governor Mike DeWine, and 10TV's Kevin Lander spoke with both candidates. If the poll numbers are correct, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has a commanding lead across Ohio as he looks to secure his second term as governor. The latest May poll has him leading 45% to 30% over challenger Nan Whaley. I mean, I think this race is still wide open. All of the polls show that, you know, Mike DeWine is under 50 percent, even though he has 99 percent name recognition. DeWine and Whaley could not be more opposite of each other on nearly every issue from guns to abortion. I believe that the one of the essential functions of government is to protect human life. DeWine supported overturning Roe v. Wade. Whaley wants more options for women to have an abortion. I asked the governor if he was open to discuss exceptions for abortions. Uh, and the legislature will, I'm sure, hold hearings. Uh, and we will, you know, kind of look at, you know, how best are we able uh, to protect human life. It, me it means that it's open for debate. Uh, is, is being debated. Uh, it will be debated by the people of the state through their state legislature. And I'm not going to say at this point anything more about that. DeWine has made it easier for Ohioans to own a gun and signed a law that allows teachers to be armed. No, Whaley says if elected, she'd roll back all of it. As governor, I will do everything in my power as governor to reduce gun violence. Mike DeWine won't. DeWine and Whaley were once comrades against gun violence following the Dayton shooting that left nine people dead. DeWine promised to do something. DeWine says he has by authorizing $250 million to support law enforcement's efforts to fight violent crime and $100 million to increase security at schools. Whaley believes DeWine has made the state more dangerous. On Strong Ohio, on Stand Your Ground, on Permitless Concealed Carry, on arming teachers without enough training. Time and time again, he has made Ohio's families less safe. Kevin Landers, 10TV News. The other race to keep an eye on is the U.S. Senate race. Tim Ryan or J.D. Vance will win retiring Senator Rob Portman's seat come November. J.D. Vance stopped by the Ohio State Fair. It was one of his first visits to our area since winning the nom nomination. We asked him where he's been. The concern I do hear from some people is we don't see your TV ads. I've even heard that today. Uh, that goes back to the resource difference issue. And look, I, I mean, I think we're going to start our TV ads this week. Don't, you know, I, I'm not certain about that, but I think that's the plan. Uh, so we are going to be up on TV. We're going to have the resources to tell our story. Uh, but where have we been? We've been out trying to earn the voters of the people of Ohio because they deserve it. Tim Ryan visited the UAW Local 12 Hall in Toledo. He talked about a bill to support veterans hurt by toxic burn pits. But this is about modern-day Agent Orange, people exposed to burn pits, and they need health care. And the government sent them off to war, 
and now we need to take care of one when we get back, when they get back, and it's just that simple. The U.S. Senate did pass the Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxics Act, or PACT Act, after it failed the week before. The second time around, Ohio Senators Sherrod Brown and Rob Portman both voted to approve the bill. Here's what Brown had to say after it passed. This is really simple. If you served your country and you're exposed to toxins, uh, you earn those benefits. You get those benefits every single time, period, no exception. That we recognize the sacrifice that people, that people have made and we meet those commitments. The most comprehensive expansion of better, benefits for veterans who face toxic exposure in our country's history, the right thing to do. Finally, as Senator Moran said, um, this work honors uh, veteran service organizations for their activism and what they did. It honors the, the person after whom this bill's named, uh, Sergeant First Class Heath Robinson from Columbus, Ohio. We named the bill after him. His widow, Danielle, has been actively working on this. His mother-in-law, Susan Zire, I've been working with for three or four years on this. She was in the gallery with Tim Hauser, uh, a veteran also from Ohio. A good day for our country a day that we should have done a long time ago and finally happened because of the leadership of the people behind me. Mental health research here in our state just got a big boost. Hear from Buckeye coach Ryan Day after he donated $1 million. Monkeypox is now a national public health emergency. We verify what that means and we give you a timeline for when Ohio will get more vaccine. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. The first ever anti-hazing summit was held at Bowling Green State University. Hundreds of educators from all over the state of Ohio attended. This comes nearly two years after BGSU sophomore Stone Foltz died from an off-campus hazing party. Reporter Madeline Watkins with our sister station in Toledo takes us to that summit. We have been working on um, anti-hazing uh, strategies at this campus, as, as so many campuses do, each and every year for so long. But the importance of always keeping it fresh, always keeping that message current and fresh and in people's minds. President Rodney Rogers says the goal of the anti-hazing summit is to ensure we can eradicate hazing at college campuses. He says Ohio is a leader right now when it comes to hazing prevention because of the Collins Law, the state's first anti-hazing law. But we still have a ways to go. Making sure that we get the parents and community members um, listening and, and they know how to uh, report they understand how to do outreach to us and to report to us. And, and for them to know kind of what, uh, you know, from an education standpoint, what, what to look out for. Keynote speaker Elizabeth Allen says there needs to be a cultural change surrounding hazing. She says mandatory and external reporting is crucial. It's about being transparent with students and parents after a hazing incident happens. Allen says we need to help others understand what it is, what the signs are, and what to do when you see it. I mean, we all need to work together again to be part of that change, to break the cycle, uh, to disrupt the idea 
that hazing is um, just a tradition or just an initiation or just some harmless pranks because we all know that it is much broader than that. It's dangerous. It can be very harmful. And we want to draw your attention to this. 10 TV's Clay Gordon recently interviewed Stone Foltz's parents shortly after they filed a lawsuit against Bowling Green. They said the school knew about the fraternity's history of hazing. You can look for his interview on our website and on that 10 TV app. Ohio State head football coach Ryan Day and his wife Christina made a million-dollar donation to support mental health. This fund will benefit the University Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health. A lot of that money is going to go to research to learn more about mental health, why people struggle, how to get through it. Ryan Day, in fact, said we've learned a great deal about mental health just during his tenure at Ohio State, and he's hoping this $1 million donation will allow us to learn even more. Private philanthropy has been called America's unique research advantage, and no other nation in the world has the culture of private giving like we do here in the United States. This American scientist, this gives American scientists the, greater, the greatest access to funds for early stage research and projects that might fail, but on the other hand, could change the world for the better. It's our hope that this fund can be part of doing just that. Just about every challenge we face as individuals and as a society is easier to overcome with better mental health, and that comes from resilience. I invite our fellow Buckeyes to join us in supporting this work and to building a healthy community. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health and you need someone to talk with, there is help with a new national hotline just launched last month. Simply dial 988 to get help. This morning, community leaders are standing up against tobacco companies. Dozens of health experts and local leaders joined a coalition to end tobacco targeting. This coalition says companies are targeting young people, especially African-Americans, with flavored tobacco products. The coalition signed a letter asking Columbus City Council to ban the sale of flavored tobacco. Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, who represents Ohio's 3rd District, is part of this effort. and She says this is just the beginning. Well, this is step first, education and awareness, making sure that all community leaders, all organizations, business organizations, and most importantly, families and communities understand that we support this fight against tobacco. And it is so important for us because we know the next step is to make sure that we get it before the city council, our elected officials, and we want that done before this year. We want them to adopt all of the principles in this because, as we've heard today, 45,000 black Americans die from tobacco. We know that there are some 15,000 different e-cigarettes. And our young folks are getting excited about the flavors. And they don't, re they don't realize the extent of the health damage that that does to them. The coalition hopes to propose this law to city council again by the end of the year. The Biden administration declared the monkeypox outbreak a national public health emergency. Monkeypox spreads primarily through skin-on-skin -skin contact. More than 600,000 vaccine doses have been distributed so far. We checked with the Ohio Department of Health. It's expecting to get more than 13,000 monkeypox vaccines in the next six weeks. With the president's announcement... Many are asking what a national public health emergency does. Evan Koslov with our Verify team explains. 
We spoke with James Hodge, a health law professor from Arizona State University. Megan McGinty, an epidemic and disaster response expert from Johns Hopkins University. And we looked at information from the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response. A public health emergency declaration is made by the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Xavier Becerra in this case. It would allow HHS to instantaneously do some things that it can't presently do quickly. It enables Becerra to hire people make grants, enter contracts, waive certain requirements, and access additional funds. Usually during emergency declarations, like with opioids or things we've seen in the past, there actually would be a freestanding fund ready to be used for devoting to these purposes. We've been working to refill that fund post-COVID, and to my knowledge to date, it's not yet been refilled. In fact, Congress has been reticent to do it. Now, monkeypox may change its mind very quickly, but the sheer fact is the funds that normally would be there to the tune of millions of dollars simply may not be at this point in time. It can also allow states and local jurisdictions to purchase general supplies at reduced cost. McGinty says there's also a symbolic value. The act of making an emergency declaration calls attention to a problem and says this is of significance that we as a country need to be paying attention to this. With your Verify, I'm Evan Kozlov. Remember, if you have something you want us to verify, let us know. Email the claim to verify at 10tv.com. Right now, there is a trooper shortage. Hear what the next superintendent of the Ohio State Highway Patrol has to say about the staffing issue and what's being done to recruit more people. And meet the new CEO of the Ohio History Connection. Find out how she is making history of her own. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. We will address the threats that we know that Ohioans are most current concerned about. That's the new Ohio State Highway Patrol Superintendent, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Jones. Colonel Richard Fambro retired on the 12th. Lieutenant Jones has a long career in law enforcement. He started as a patrol officer in 1994. He was promoted to sergeant at the Delaware Post and trained at the FBI in 2005. When he was introduced as the new superintendent, he talked about the changes he now faces. Uh, in the Highway Patrol, our manpower, we're down about 200 troopers. Uh, that's that's public facing um, and and we need troopers all over the state you know the state is broken up into to nine districts uh, to which uh, the women and men of the patrol work our troopers work out of uh, and we know that uh, that our the manpower with respect to that is is down so we need troopers across the the whole state uh, and you know that is our goal uh, our recruitment commander um, uh, is diligently working on some strategies uh, to bolster uh, our recruitment efforts, to get the word out, and uh, to see if we can fill many of those vacancies that we have. Well, one important recruitment tool is a bigger paycheck. The state recently authorized a raise for many troopers, including a $5,000 bonus for some. All right, the Ohio History Connection is making some history of its own. Their new CEO is now the first woman to lead the History Center that was established more than 100 years ago. I talked with her one-on-one -on -one this week, and I asked her for her thoughts on being the first female in this role. 
Yeah, it's, I think a lot of people would think, hasn't that happened already? You know, our organization started, was founded in 1885, um, so it's been a long time coming. Um, but I'm just so proud and excited um, and, you know, just hopefully that in being the first in this role that I can kind of lend a hand um, so others can come up behind me. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about um, some of your goals? So I'm really hoping to continue um, the organization's path and becoming more vibrant and more relevant. And just thinking um, ahead, we have sites that are about to be inscribed in the World Heritage List. Um, so thinking about how we are going to help in, you know, invite the world to Ohio to see those Hopewell ceremonial earthworks. Um, and also just creating new experiences across our 58 sites so that um, you know, younger audiences can get connected with our history and be proud of Ohio. So you mentioned Hopewell. Yeah. For people who will see this interview and be like, what is that? Yes. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the Hopewell Ceremonial Earthwork sites include several earthwork sites um, across the state, like Fort Ancient and the Newark Earthworks that were built um, by the American Indian people who lived here 2,000 years ago. They're huge in scale. They they have amazing astronomical alignments, the moon, um, the uh, cycles of the moon. And so they are these masterpieces of creative human genius uh, done by the American Indians that lived here for thousands of years. When I really got connected to history, I realized it was a pathway to learn more about myself, but also to learn more about other people and to have empathy for other people's perspective. Um, and that you, know, you can almost find anything in the past as a tool to understand Um, anybody or anything. So I think there's a personal discovery, there's personal work, but then there's also this connectedness that everything is really connected. Um, And when I had that light bulb moment in high school, I just knew that this this was the work that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. The Ohio History Connection is more than the building you can see right there on 17th Avenue off I-71. It includes 58 historic sites and museums located in 40 counties across Ohio. There are also 33 historic sites, 300 buildings built between 1788 and 2013, 12 museums, 9 archaeology sites, 7 canal locks, 4 natural history sites, 4 bridges, and 2 boats. It's a lot. We certainly thank you all for joining us here today and wish you a great week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Serving part-time in the Army National Guard has led to a lot of firsts for me. It paid for me to be the first person in my family to go to school. That education got me to the first day at my dream job, which I can still hold while I serve part-time. That job and the home loan benefits I got from the Army National Guard helped me buy my first house. I also know that I will be one of the first to respond if my community ever needs me. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Grace Gostet. I'm a singer-songwriter, and like many, I've been traumatized by years of bullying. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're gay. You're worthless. Bullying causes real harm and can result in severe long-term depression, anxiety, addiction, and even self-harm. I created the Black Box Project for anyone who has ever felt different for any reason. Go to theblackboxproject.org to help you take the first step to healing. You are not alone. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. 
Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dr. Douglas Shari, who is the director of the Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders at Ohio State University. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about the Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders. Sure. Here at Ohio State University, uh, we have a large center that see patients that are clinically diagnosed with memory issues, mild cognitive impairment, dementia conditions. Plus, the center is also highly involved in clinical research, so we do many studies to evaluate new ways to diagnose and particularly treat those with memory loss and, and dementia. And finally, uh, we do a lot of education, maybe something similar to what we're doing today on, on the radio here, to try to educate uh, people as well as a new physician to uh, try to come into the field and help other people. And uh, there is a unique opportunity uh, available for folks. Before we get into that, I did want to mention briefly that this study field that you're in is growing so quickly in importance because of our aging population. Very true. Uh, Everyone knows people who are older that have memory loss. And gosh, probably if you reach the age of 60, uh, maybe one in six of us will have uh, afflictions that can impair their thinking or memory to a significant degree. So, And people are living older. So we really do need to uh, search out and find better ways to treat these conditions. And we are making a lot of good progress. It's such a, a frightening thing. You know, I'm uh, entering that age range now, and I don't feel like anything is going on with me mentally. But when things do begin to happen, do people realize it? Do they become self-aware and alarmed at what's going on with them? Well, as most listeners will know, there are some individuals that are very in tune to their body and their mind and will notice changes and others of us that are not in tune to medical issues and may not notice. So there is a wide uh, variation. You have got uh, an opportunity for folks 55 and over to be involved in a study. Yes, we have many uh, studies going on and this particular one is for people that uh, are 55 and older and it's involved in people with just a mild cognitive loss. We call that mild cognitive impairment, which is not normal aging. So it's a little bit more than that. So for example, you pay this important bill finally, and then uh, you find out that, uh, shoot, you paid it twice because uh, you had forgotten the first time. Or, you know, that's a little unusual because uh, who has money to do that? Or you um, are constantly uh, forgetting your list to go to the store or you know, you're just more inefficient. You're still able to do things. You can still handle your, your telephone, maybe, and, and uh, TV remote, but uh, things are getting more complex and more confusing to you. So those are the types of individuals with mild cognitive impairment, uh, and we're more than happy to evaluate people to see if you fit into those types of degree of cognitive loss. So the study is for those individuals, and it is uh, funded by the National Institutes of Health. So it's so important that the uh, NIH is uh, looking at this, and it tests this substance called nicotine, which is a natural substance in our body. Sometimes we think of it more with cigarettes, uh, but it's not has does not have any of the adverse effects cigarettes does. That's the tar and um, substances in the uh, smoke, uh, if you... If you've had ever cigarettes before, which we do not recommend and which are not allowed in this study, by the way, 
but it uses nicotine, which is critical to stimulate those chemicals in the brain that are responsible for memory and attention. And these are so important for our day-to-day functioning. So we're trying to improve the attention and memory issues that people get that might um, lead to these conditions like Alzheimer's disease that uh, we know so well. And I guess it involves nicotine patches that would be used? Yes. So the nicotine is a form of the patch, so you don't have to take uh, pills. And these are very easily uh, applied and removed. There's no withdrawal effects after the study is finished. Uh, As I said, it's a very normal and natural substance that uh, is often used for people who are trying to quit smoking. Nicotine is particular for uh, stimulating acetylcholine, which is very important in memory circuits. It is designed to help us think better, focus, attention, uh, which is really important for us to understand other people as well. If we're, we're not paying attention or focusing, then we do a poor job of uh, remembering what they were telling us. So if people get involved in this study, how hands-on is it? How much time do they need to devote to it? It is really not a time-intense study. Uh, you get medications. You would be given this thing called an informed consent. And this is something that you can read exactly how often the visits are. You just come in periodically to be tested to see if the medication is working. Now, I do want to mention one other thing, if I can. It is very important for us to find better treatments for all people. And that includes whites, blacks, and Hispanics, uh, different ethnicities. Uh, We do know that blacks and Hispanics uh, seem to disproportionately have more issues than whites. Uh, Not to a huge degree, but definitely we are all different. And so we need everyone to come in to participate in this study. If you're white, black, Hispanic, you can help other people in your own community. If if we get more information about how these medications may impact you, one medication might help a certain person but may not help so much the other. And we just do not have the numbers and participants of black and Hispanics in particular in these clinical trials to adequately help determine if these medications, not just the mind patch, uh, the nicotine patch, but for any clinical trials, uh, we are struggling to find the best treatments for everyone. Talking with Dr. Douglas Shari, he's the director of the Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders at Ohio State University. How do people find out more about this study, and if they want to get enrolled, how do they do it? If uh, they live in the central Ohio area at Ohio State, uh, you can call our research center, that's 614-293-6882. If you live uh, quite a ways from Ohio State, uh, you can call a national number at 866-MIND-150, 866-MIND-150, and there's also a website, mind study.org. It's outstanding. I, I did want to ask you a couple of real quick questions while I have you on the line. What about these uh, supplements? You see ads on television for supplements that supposedly improve your uh, memory. Are those valid? Uh, they have not been tested in any uh, significant way with people with serious cognitive issues. This is what this 
uh, nicotine uh, medication is designed for. So they've been looked at in normal aging. They're pretty safe. It is completely unknown whether they help anyone who would have any cognitive issues, but significant such as uh, early Alzheimer's disease or those types of things. So you might take it if you have extra funds or uh, if you feel that uh, you want to try something to help with just normal day-to-day activities, but it is not for someone that has some significant changes in memory or thinking. And uh, I know that there have been some really high-profile studies uh, looking at ways to tackle Alzheimer's, and a couple of promising ones sort of fell through a couple of years ago, but there has been some progress. Do you think this is something that's eventually going to be solved? Alzheimer's will be solved. It's a very solvable type of condition. We know the different proteins and abnormal proteins that build up that cause uh, damage and toxicity in nerve cells and kill them. Um, So we're quite aware of what we can attack. We know the inflammation is there. We're trying to find the right key and the right mixture of these medications that we've made tremendous progress uh, in this fight. It hasn't come to breakthrough drugs yet. Uh, We're sort of around the edges, but it will come, and science will gradually figure out uh, this very complex disease. But I see there's a very treatable condition, maybe not uh, completely curable, if possible, but at least prevent it so that uh, you can live into uh, very old ages without having significant cognitive issues. And this new, uh, very expensive medication that Medicare was uh, dealing with. I know that's that's even controversial among doctors as to whether that's recommended or not. What, what is your take on that? It's been a very well-studied medication, and uh, the FDA approved it. Uh, some people, it's controversial only to the extent that it only showed one out of two studies that were significantly better than placebo, which is better than no studies, of course, and not as good as both studies, so it may not be a uh, you know miracle blockbuster drug, but we've had so many failures in the last 20 years. Uh, a drug that shows some promise is uh, better than not, and the FDA decided it does such a great job at getting rid of this toxic amyloid protein that they would uh, approve it. Other people are saying, well, it's not enough uh, to pay all that much money for it. Uh, it's a great first step. It's fabulous. We're getting rid of amyloid. We're finding better ways. There's three or four drugs on its tail that do similarly and may have a better impact on thinking and cognition. Uh, Maybe we just didn't try it early enough in the course. So uh, we do not want to throw this great drug out. Uh, We want to amend it, improve it, maybe change the timing of it. Uh, So it's a great step and should be considered uh, good news for the field of uh, treating for Alzheimer's. Well, when you think of the impact of Alzheimer's and, you know, how important it is to get a handle on it, you know, 10,000 people a day in the U.S. are hitting age 65. 10,000 a day. It's just astounding. Yes, it is. And we want, uh, everyone wants to have a, um, a nice uh, life as you age. And uh, we want to be able to know our grandchildren, for example, or uh, enjoy uh, our living, et cetera, and having a good mind is very critical for that. So do everything you can to keep your mind healthy. Um, you know, eat right and exercise, uh, keep your mind active. Uh, these are all great things as well. And again, the website is mindstudy.org for uh, more information about this study. Anything else you'd like to add, Dr. Shari? Well, we are just 
very, very appreciative and uh, grateful of the altruism of people willing to participate in trials. Uh, particularly, think about it if you uh, are of ethnic, any kind of ethnicity, uh, black, Hispanic especially, we need to uh, find better treatments for everyone and participating in these trials uh, will help us do that. Dr. Douglas Shari, Director, Center for Cognitive and Memory Disorders at Ohio State University. Thanks so much for your time today and good luck with the study. Thank you very much. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.